The Halfling's Gem, Book 3, Desert Empires It is like looking into a mirror that paints the world with opposing colors. White hair to black, black skin to white, light eyes to dark. What an intricate mirror it is to replace a smile with a frown and an expression of friendship with a seemingly perpetual scowl. For that is how I view Artemis Centreri. This warrior who can complement every movement I make with a similar precision and grace. The warrior who, in every way but one, I would regard as my equal. How difficult it was for me to stand with him in the depths of Mithril Hall, fighting side by side for both our lives. Strangely, it was not any moral imperative that bothered me about fighting in that situation. It was no belief that Entreri should die, had to die, and that I, if I was not such a coward, would have killed him then and there, even if that action cost me my own life as I tried to escape the inhospitable deaths. No, nothing like that. What made it all so difficult for me was watching that man, that human assassin, and knowing, without the slightest shred of doubt, that I very well might have been looking at myself. Is that who I would have become had I not found Zach Nefane in those early years in Menzoberranzan? Had I not discovered the example of one who so validated my own beliefs that the ways of the drow were not right morally and practically? Is that cold-hearted killer who I would have become had it been my vicious sister Breeza training me instead of my more gentle Verna? I fear that it is. That I, despite all that I know to be true within the depths of my very heart, would have been overwhelmed by the situation about me, would have succumbed to the despair to a point where there remained little of compassion and justice. I would have become an assassin, holding strong within my own code of ethics. But with that code so horribly warped that I could no longer understand the truth of my actions, that I could justify them with the sheerest cynicism. I saw all of that when I looked upon Entreri, and thanked Maliki profoundly for those in my life, for Zach Nefane, for Belwar Dizengulp, and for Montalio, who helped me steer the correct course. And if I saw a potential for myself within Entreri, then I must admit that there was once a potential for Entreri to become as I have become, to know compassion and community, to know friends, good friends, and to know love. I think about him a lot, as he no doubt thinks about me. While his obsession is based in pride, in the challenge of overcoming me in battle, mine own is wrought of curiosity, of seeking answers within myself by observing the actions of who I might have become. Do I hate him? Strangely, I do not. That lack of hatred is not based on the respect that I give the man for his fighting prowess, for that measure of respect ends right there, at the end of the battlefield. No, I do not hate Artemis and Trary because I pity him the events that led to the wrong decisions he has made. There is true strength within him, and there is, or once was, a substantial potential to do good in a world so need of heroes. For despite his actions, I have come to understand that Entreri operates within a very strict code. In his own warped view of the world, I believe that Entreri honestly believes that he never killed anyone who did not deserve it. He held Caterbury captive, but did not rape her. As for his actions concerning Regis, well, Regis was, in reality, a thief, and though he stole from another thief, that does not excuse that crime. 
In Luskin, as in most cities in the realms, thieves lose their hands, or worse, and certainly a bounty hunter sent to retrieve a stolen item, and a person who stole it, is well within the law to kill that person and anyone else who hinders his task. In Calimport, Artemis Centuri operates among thieves and thugs, among the very edge of civilization. In that capacity, he deals death, as did Zach Nefane in the alleys of Menzoberranza. There is a difference, certainly, between the two, and I do not in any way mean to excuse Entreri from his crimes. Neither will I consider him the simple killing monster that was, say, Urtu. Now, there was once potential there, I know, though I fear he is far gone from that road. For when I look upon Artemis Entreri, I see myself. I see the capacity to love, and also the capacity to lose all of that and become cold. So very cold. Perhaps we will meet again and do battle. And if I kill him, I will shed no tears for him. Not for who he is, at least. But, quite possibly, I will cry for who this marvelous warrior might have been. If I kill him, I will be crying for myself. Drizzt Duarden Chapter 16 Never a Fowler Place and Trary slipped through the shadows of Calimport's bowels as quietly as an owl gliding through the forest at twilight. This was his home, the place he knew best, and all the street people of the city would mark the day when Artemis and Trary again walked beside them, or behind them. And Trary couldn't help but smile slightly whenever the hushed whispers commenced in his wake, the more experienced rogues telling the newcomers that the king had returned. And Trary never let the legend of his reputation no matter how well-earned, interfere with the constant state of readiness that had kept him alive through the years. In the streets, a reputation of power only marked a man as a target for ambitious second-rates seeking reputations of their own. Thus, Antrevi's first task in the city, outside of his responsibilities to Pasha Pook, was to re-establish the network of informants and associates that entrenched him in his station. He already had an important job for one of them, with Drizzt and company fast approaching, and he knew which one. I had heard you were back, squeaked a diminutive chap appearing as a human boy, not yet into adolescence, when Entreri ducked and entered his abode. I guess most have. Entreri took the compliment with a nod. What has changed, my halfling friend? Little, replied Dondon, and lots. He moved to the table in the darkest corner of his small quarters, the side room, facing the alley, in a cheap inn called the Coiled Snake. The rules of the street do not change, but the players do. Dondon looked up from the table's unlit lamp to catch Entreri's eyes with his own. Artemis Entreri was gone, after all, the halfling explained, wanting to make sure that Entreri fully understood his previous statement. The royal suite had a vacancy. And Trary nodded his accord, causing the halfling to relax and sigh audibly. Pook still controls the merchants and the docks, said Entreri. Who owns the streets? Pook still, replied Dandan. At least in name. He found another agent in your stead. A whole horde of agents. Dandan paused for a moment to think. Again, he had to be careful to weigh every word before he spoke it. Perhaps it would be more accurate to say that Pasha Pook does not control the streets, but rather that he still has the streets controlled. 
and Trevi knew, even before asking, what the little halfling was leading to. Rassiter, he said grimly. There is much to be said about that one and his crew, Don Don chuckled, resuming his efforts to light the lantern. Pook lessens his reins on the were-rats, and the ruffians of the street take care to stay out of the guild's way. And Trevi reasoned, Rassiter and his kind play hard, and fall hard. The chill of Entreri's tone brought Don Don's eyes back up from the lantern, and for the first time, the halfling truly recognized the old Artemis Entreri, the human street fighter who had built his shadowy empire one ally at a time. An involuntary shudder rippled up Don Don's spine, and he shifted uncomfortably on his feet. Entreri saw the effect and quickly switched the subject. Enough of this, he said. Let it not concern you, little one. I have a job for you that is more in line with your talents. Don Don finally got the lantern's wick to take, and he pulled up a chair, eager to please his old boss. They talked for more than an hour, until the lantern became a solitary defense against the insistent blackness of the night. Then Andrei took his leave, through the window and into the alley. He didn't believe that Rassiter would be so foolish as to strike before taking full measure of the assassin, before the were-rat could even begin to understand the dimensions of his enemy. Then again, Entreri didn't mark Rassiter high on any intelligence scale. Perhaps it was Entreri, though, who didn't truly understand his enemy, or how completely Rassiter and his wretched minions had come to dominate the streets over the last three years. Less than five minutes after Entreri had gone... Dondon's door swung open again, and Rassiter stepped through. What did he want? The swaggering fighter asked, plopping comfortably into a chair at the table. Dondon moved away uneasily, noticing two more of Rassiter's cronies standing guard in the hall. After more than a year, the halfling still felt uncomfortable around Rassiter. Come, come now, Rassiter prompted. He asked again, his tone more grim. What did he want? The last thing Don Don wanted was to get caught in a crossfire between the were-rats and the assassin, but he had little choice but to answer Rassiter. If Entreri ever learned of the double-cross, Don Don knew that his days would swiftly end. Yet, if he didn't spill out to Rassiter, his demise would be no less certain and the method less swift. He sighed at the lack of options and spilled his story, detail by detail, to Rassiter. Rassiter gave no countermand to Entreri's instructions. He would let Dondon play out the scenario exactly as Entreri had devised it. Apparently, the were believed he could twist it into his own gains. He sat quietly for a moment, scratching his hairless chin and savoring the anticipation of his easy victory, his broken teeth gleaming in a deeper yellow in the lamplight. "'You will run with us this night?' he asked the halfling, satisfied that the assassin's business was completed. "'The moon will be bright.' He squeezed one of Dondon's cherub-like cheeks. The fur will be thick, eh? Dondon pulled away from the grasp. Not this night, he replied, a bit too sharply. Rassiter cocked his head, studying Dondon curiously. He always had suspected that the halfling was not comfortable with his new station. Might this defiance be linked to the return of his old boss? Rassiter wondered. Tease him and die! Dandan replied, drawing an even more curious look from the were-rat. "'You have not begun to understand this man you face,' Dandan continued unshaken. 
Artemis and Treary is not to be toyed with, not by the wise. He knows everything. If a half-sized rat is seen running with the pack, then my life is forfeit and your plans are ruined. He moved right up, in spite of his revulsion for the men, and set a grave visage barely an inch from Rassiter's nose. Forfeit, he reiterated. At the least. Rassiter spun out of the chair, sending it bouncing across the room. He had heard too much about Artemis and Trary in a single day for his liking. Everywhere he turned, trembling lips uttered the assassin's name. Don't they know, he told himself once again as he strode angrily to the door. It is Rassiter they should fear. He felt the telltale itching of his chin, then the crawling sensation of tingling growth swept through his body. Don Don backed away and averted his eyes, never comfortable with the spectacle. Rassiter kicked off his boots and loosened his shirt and pants. The hair was visible now, rushing out of his skin in scraggly patches and clumps. He fell back against the wall as the fever took him completely. His skin bubbled and bulged, particularly around his face. He sublimated his scream as his snout elongated, though the wash of agony was no less intense this time than it had been during his very first transformation. He stood there before Don Don on two legs as a man, but whiskered and furred, and with a long pink tail that ran out of the back of his trousers as a rodent. Join me? he asked the halfling. Hiding his revulsion, Don Don quickly declined. Looking at the rat man, the halfling wondered how he had ever allowed Rassiter to bite him, infecting him with his lycanthropic nightmare. It will bring you power, Rassiter had promised. But at what cost, Don Don thought, to look and smell like a rat? No blessing, this, but a disease. Rassiter guessed at the halfling's distaste, and he curled his rat snout back in a threatening hiss, then turned for the door. He spun back on Don Don before exiting the room. Keep away from this, he warned the halfling. Do as you were bid and hide away. No doubt to that, Don Don whispered as the door slammed shut. The aura that distinguished Calimport as home to so very many Kalashites came across as foul to the strangers from the north. Truly, Drizzt, Wolfgar, Bruner, and Canterbury were weary of the Calum Desert when the five-day trek had come to an end, but looking down on the city of Calimport made them want to turn around and take to the sands once again. It was wretched Memnon on a grander scale, with the divisions of wealth so blatantly obvious that Calimporn cried out as ultimately perverted to the four friends. Elaborate houses, monuments to excess, and hinting at wealth beyond imagination dotted the cityscape. Yet, right beside those palaces loomed lane after lane of decrepit shanties of crumbling clay or ragged skins. The friends couldn't guess how many people roamed the place, certainly more than Waterdeep and Memnon combined, and they knew at once that in Calimport, as in Memnon, no one had ever bothered to count. Salah de Lee dismounted, bidding the others to do likewise, and led them down a final hill and into the unwalled city. The friends found the sights in Calimport no better up close. Naked children, their bellies bloated from lack of food, scrambled out of the way or were simply trampled as gilded, slave-drawn carts rushed through the streets. Worse still were the sides of those avenues, ditches mostly, serving as open sewers in the city's poor sections. There were thrown the bodies of the impoverished who had fallen to the roadside at the end of their miserable days. Shorten Rumblebelly never told us of such sights when he spoke of his home, 
Bruner grumbled, pulling his cloak over his face to deflect the awful stench. Past me guessing why he'd long for this place. The greatest city in the world, this be. Saladalib spouted, lifting his arms to enhance his praise. Wolfgar, Bruner, and Caterbury shot him incredulous stares. Hordes of people begging and starving was not their idea of greatness. Drizzt paid the merchant no heed, though. He was busy making the inevitable comparison between Kalimport and another city he had known, Menzabaranzan. Truly, there were similarities, and death was no less common in Menzabaranzan. But Kalimport somehow seemed fouler than the city of the drow. Even the weakest of the Dark Elves had the means to protect himself with the strong family ties and deadly innate abilities. The pitiful peasants of Kalimport, though, and more so their children, seemed helpless and hopeless indeed. In Menzuburanzan, those on the lowest rungs of the power ladder could fight their way to a better standing. For the majority of Kalimport's multitude, though, there would only be poverty and day-to-day squalid existence until they landed on the piles of buzzard-pecked bodies in the ditches. Take us to the guildhouse of Pasha Puk, Drizzt said, getting to the point, wanting to be done with his business and out of Kalimport. Then you are dismissed. Saladali paled at the request. Pasha Poop? he stammered. Who is this? Bah, Bruner snorted, moving dangerously close to the merchant. He knows him. Sure, and he does, Caterbury observed, and fears him. Saladalib, not, the merchant began. Twinkle came out of its sheath and slipped to a stop under the merchant's chin, silencing the man instantly. Driz let his mask slip a bit, reminding Saladalib of the drow's heritage. Once again, his suddenly grim demeanor unnerved even his own friends. I think of my friend. Drizzt said in a calm, low tone, his lavender eyes absently staring into the city, tortured even as we delay. He snapped his scowl at Saladalib as you delay. You will take us to the guildhouse of Pasha Pook, he reiterated more insistently, and then you are dismissed. Uh, Pook? Oh, <laughs> Pook! The merchant beamed. Saladalib, know this man. Yes, yes, yes. Everybody know Pug. Yes, yes. I take you there. Then I go. Drizzt replaced the mask but kept his stern visage. If you or your little companion try to flee, he promised so calmly that neither the merchant nor his assistant doubted his words for a moment. I will hunt you down and kill you. The drow's three friends exchanged confused shrugs and concerned glances. They felt confident that they knew Driz to his soul, but so grim was his tone that even they wondered how much of his promise was an idle threat. It took more than an hour for them to twist and wind their way through the maze that was Calimport, to the dismay of their friends, who wanted nothing more than to be off the streets and away from that fetid stench. Finally, to their relief, Saladalib turned a final corner to Rogue Circle and pointed to the unremarkable wooden structure at the end. Pasha Pook's guildhouse. There be the Pook, Saladalib said. Now, Saladalib, take his camels and be gone back to Memnon. The friends were not so quick to be rid of the wily merchant. More to me guessing that Saladalib be heading for Pook to sell some tales of four friends, Bruner growled. Well, we've a way beyond that, said Caterbury. She shot Drizzt a sly wink, then moved up to the curious and frightened merchant, reaching into her pack as she went. Her look went suddenly grim, 
so wickedly intense that Salah Dalib jerked back when her hand came up to his forehead. Hold your place! Caterbury snapped at him harshly, and he had no resistance to the power of her tone. She had a powder, a flower-like substance in her pack. Reciting some gibberish that sounded like an arcane chant, she traced a scimitar on Salah Dalib's forehead. The merchant tried to protest but couldn't find his tongue for his terror. Now for the little one, Caterbury said, turning to Salah Dalib's goblin assistant. The goblin squeaked and tried to dash away, but Wolfgar caught it in one hand and held it out to Caterbury, squeezing tighter and tighter until the thing stopped wiggling. Caterbury performed the ceremony again, then turned to Drizzt. They be linked to your spirit now, she said. Do you feel them? Drizzt, understanding the bluff, nodded grimly and slowly drew his two scimitars. Salah Dalib paled and nearly toppled over, but Bruner, moving closer to watch his daughter's games, was quick to prop the terrified man up. Ah, let them go then. Me witchin's through, Caterbury told both Wolfgar and Bruner. The drow will feel your presence now, she hissed at Salah Dalib and his goblin. He'll know when you're about and when you're gone. If you stay in the city and if your thoughts are going to Pook, the drow will know and... He'll follow your feel. Hunt you down. She paused for a moment, wanting the two to fully comprehend the horror they faced. And he'll kill you. Slow. Take your lumpy horses, then, and be gone, Bruno roared. If I be seeing your stinking faces again, the drow'll have to wait in line for his cuts. Before the dwarf had even finished, Salah Dalib and the goblin had collected their camels and were off, away from Rogue Circle and back toward the northern end of the city. Them two are for the desert, Brunner laughed when they had gone. Fine tricks, me girl. Drizzt pointed to the sign of an inn, the spitting camel, halfway down the lane. Get us rooms, he told his friends. I will follow them to make certain they do indeed leave the city. Ah, wasting your time. Bruner called after him. The girl's got him running, or I'm a bearded gnome. Drizzt had already started padding silently into the maze of Calimport streets. Wolfgar, caught unawares by her uncharacteristic trickery, and still not quite sure what had just happened, eyed Caterbury carefully. Bruner didn't miss his apprehensive look. Take note, boy, the dwarf taunted. Sure and the girl's got herself a nasty streak you'll not want get turned on yourself. Playing through for the sake of Bruner's enjoyment, Caterbury glared at the big barbarian and narrowed her eyes, causing Wolfgar to back off a cautious step. Witchin magic, she cackled. Tells me when your eyes be filled with the likings of another woman. She turned slowly, not releasing him from her stare until she'd taken three steps back down the lane toward the inn Drizzt had indicated. Bruner reached high and slapped Wolfgar on the back as he started after Caterbury. Fine lass, he remarked to Wolfgar. Just don't be getting her mad. Wolfgar shook the confusion out of his head and forced out a laugh, reminding himself that Caterbury's magic had been only a dupe to frighten the merchant. But Caterbury's glare, as she'd carried out the deception and the sheer strength of her intensity, followed him as he walked down Rogue Circle. Both a shudder and a sweet tingle spread down his spine. Half the sun had fallen below the western horizon before Drizzt returned to Rogue Circle. He had followed Salah Dalib and his assistant far out into the Kalim Desert, though the merchant's frantic pace gave no indication that he had any intentions of turning back to Kalimport. Drizzt simply wouldn't take the chance. 
they were too close to finding Regis and too close to Entreri. Masked as an elf, Drizzt was beginning to realize how easily the disguise now came to him. He made his way into the spitting camel and to the innkeeper's desk. An incredibly skinny, leather-skinned man, who kept his back always to the wall and his head darting nervously in every direction, met him. Three friends, Drizzt said gruffly, a dwarf, a woman, and a golden-haired giant. Up the stairs, the man told him. To the left. Two gold if you mean to stay the night. He held out his bony hand. The dwarf already paid you, Drizzt said grimly, starting away. For himself, the girl, and the big... The innkeeper started, grabbing Drizzt by the shoulder. The look in Drizzt's lavender eyes, though, stopped the innkeeper cold. He paid, the merchant man stuttered. I remember. He paid. Drizzt walked away without another word. He found the two rooms on opposite sides of the corridor at the far end of the structure. He had meant to go straight in with Wolfgar and Bruner and grab a short rest, hoping to be out of the street when night fully fell, when Entreri would likely be about. Drizzt found, instead, Caterbury in her doorway, apparently waiting for him. She motioned him into her chamber and closed the door behind him. Drizzt settled on the very edge of one of the two chairs in the center of the room, his foot tapping the floor in front of him. Caterbury studied him as she walked around to the other chair. She'd known Drizzt for years, but never had seen him so agitated. You seem as though you mean to tear yourself into pieces, she said. Drizzt gave her a cold look, but Caterbury laughed it away. Do you mean to strike me, then? That prompted the drought to settle back in his chair. And don't you be wearing that silly mask, Caterbury scolded. Drizzt reached for the mask, but hesitated. Take it off, Caterbury ordered and the drought complied before he had time to reconsider. "'You came a bit grim in the street afore you left,' Caterbury remarked, her voice softening. "'We had to make certain,' Drizzt replied coldly. "'I do not trust Salah Dalib.' "'Nor meself,' Caterbury agreed. "'But you're still grim by me seeing.' "'You were the one with the witching magic,' Drizzt shot back, his tone defensive. "'It was Caterbury who showed herself grim then.' Caterbury shrugged. A needed act, she said. An act I dropped when the merchant had gone. But yourself, she said pointedly, leaning forward and placing a comforting hand on Driz's knee. You're up for a fight. Driz started to jerk away, but realized the truth of her observations and forced himself to relax under her friendly touch. He looked away, for he found that he could not soften the sternness of his visage. "'What's it about?' Caterbury whispered. Drizzt looked back to her then, and remembered all the times he and she had shared back in Icewind Dale. In her sincere concern for him now, Drizzt recalled the first time they had met, when the smile of the girl, for she was then but a girl, had given the displaced and disheartened drow a renewed hope for his life among the surface dwellers. Caterbury knew more about him than anyone alive, about those things that were important to him and made his stoic existence bearable. She alone recognized the fears that lay beneath his black skin, the insecurity masked by the skill of his sword arm. And Trary, he answered softly. You mean to kill him? I have to. Caterbury sat back to consider the words. If you be killing Entreri to free Regis, she said at length, and to stop him from hurting anyone else, then my heart says it's a good thing. She leaned forward again, bringing her face close to Drizzt's. 
But if you're meaning to kill him to prove yourself or to deny what he is, then me heart cries. She could have slapped Drizzt and had the same effect. He sat up straight and cocked his head, his features twisted in angry denial. He let Caterbury continue, but he could not dismiss the importance of the observant woman's perceptions. Sure in the world's not fair, me friend. Sure in by the measure of hearts, you've been wronged. But are you after the assassin for your own anger? Will killing and Trary cure the wrong? Driz did not answer, but his look turned stubbornly grim again. Look in the mirror, Driz to Arden, Caterbury said, without the mask. Killin and Trary won't change the color of his skin, or the color of your own. Again, Drizzt had been slapped, and this time it brought an undeniable ring of truth with it. He fell back in his chair, looking upon Cadbury as he'd never looked upon her before. Where had Brunner's little girl gone? Before him loomed a woman, beautiful and sensitive, and laying bare his soul with a few words. They'd shared much, it was true. But how could she know him so very well? And why had she taken the time? You've truer friends than ever you'll know, Caterbury said, and not for the way you twirl the sword. You've others who would call themselves friends, if only they could get inside the length of your arm, if only you'd learn to look. Drizzt considered the words. He remembered the sea sprite and Captain Dordemont and the crew, standing behind him even when they knew his heritage. And if only you'd ever learned to love, Caterbury continued, her voice barely audible. Shorin, you've let things slip past, Drizzt to Arden. Drizzt studied her intently, weighing the glimmer in her dark, saucer-like eyes. He tried to fathom what she was getting at, what personal message she was sending to him. The door burst open suddenly, and Wolfgar bounded into the room, a smile stretching the length of his face and the eager look of adventure gleaming in his pale blue eyes. "'Good that you're back,' he said to Drizzt. He moved behind Caterbury and dropped an arm comfortably across her shoulders. "'The night has come, and a bright moon peeks over the eastern rim. Time for the hunt!' Caterbury put her hand on Wolfgar's and flashed him an adoring smile. Drizzt was glad that they had found each other. They would grow together in a blessed and joyful life, rearing children that would no doubt be the envy of all the Northland. Caterbury looked back to Drizzt. Just for your thoughts, me friend, she said calmly. Are you more trapped by the way the world sees you, or by the way you see the world seeing you? The tension eased out of Drizzt's muscles. If Caterbury was right in her observations, he would have a lot of thinking to do. Time to hunt! Caterbury cried, satisfied that she'd gotten her point across. She rose beside Wolfgar and headed for the door, but she turned her head over her shoulder to face Drizzt one final time, giving him a look that told him that perhaps he should have asked for more from Caterbury back in Icewind Dale, before Wolfgar had entered her life. Drizzt sighed as they left the room and instinctively reached for the magical mask. Instinctively, he wondered. Driz dropped the thing suddenly and fell back in the chair in thought, clasping his hands behind his head. He glanced around, hoping, but the room had no mirror.